Hello and welcome back to Amy Talks. It's been a while since you heard my voice, which is a bit hoarse. Apologies for that. You're going to have to put up with it for a few more weeks, I'm afraid. It's time for the annual look back to 2019's guests, catching up with them and seeing what they've been doing since I interviewed them for the show. Without further ado, let's get into it. I interviewed Lisa Boucher back in April 2019, which offered a fascinating insight into the world of alcoholism, talking about how you don't need to be drinking every day to be classified as an alcoholic. Here's a quick clip of our chat about this. We were just talking about social situations, but there is also a rise in drinking at home as well. So do you think that's kind of environmental factors like um, stress and anxiety or like political events and seeing the news 24-7? Like, What do you think has triggered the rise in, in drinking at, at home? I think there's a, a it, it's complicated. I think there's people who, you know, they're they're dissatisfied in their jobs. They're mm-hmm. dissatisfied in their relationships. They have childhood trauma that has never been healed. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, emotional baggage that they've never addressed. So that right there, I think, fuels drinking. And someone, you know, if they have a job they hate, so maybe they're drinking now because they just can't stand this job instead of getting another job. Or maybe they're not in a position where they can just up and get another job. So I think it's become everyone's way to cope. And it's like they look forward to the drinking to have that escape Mm. as opposed to looking at the emotional piece of it and saying, what's going on with me? What have I not worked through? And a lot of this goes back, like I said, to our childhoods. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had a very, it was traumatic in a lot of ways. I was raised with an alcoholic mother. There was a lot of insanity and craziness in our house. My father was angry and raging and could be physically abusive at times. Mm -hmm. And So when you get a beer, you realize, oh, that's, you know, that uh aha, and it takes the edge off, and there you go. That's how a lot of people start into addiction, is just to escape this flood of emotional feelings that they just don't have the skills to cope with in a healthy Mm. way. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I caught up with her recently and asked about her ongoing work after we spoke last year. Take a listen to what she's been up to. What's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in 2019? Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. The nicest thing. I don't know that it's the nicest thing that anyone has, like, I would say having, getting the news that I'm going to have a grandbaby. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's not really like doing something, but that was pretty special. So I'd say that was highlight of 2019 was getting that news and it's a little girl and she will is due at the end of March. So we're very excited. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Did you acquire any new hobbies? Um, I have taken on rekindling a hobby that I used to do, and that's with horses. I've been volunteering at barns to help clean stalls and brush horses. I lost my dog in September. Oh, no. Yeah, I loved him so, so much. And it was really the first time 
in a, in a good portion of my adult life that I was without a pet. Mm. And so I don't really want to get another dog because of the grandbaby coming and they live mm. in Seattle and I'm in Ohio. So there's going to be a lot of travel and whatnot. So I thought I need to be around animals. I miss them in my life and I need them in my life. So I contacted some barns and now I'm, I clean stall. So and I love it. My, my favorite place in the world, Amy, is to be in a barn. Oh, that's great. Could you pick three words that sum up 2019? Challenging, hopeful, joy. Challenging in what way? Challenging in figuring out, um, I started a new book, where I was going with that. It's very mm-hmm. different from my previous work. Um, so it's been an extreme challenge to get this manuscript gelled. And I think I finally got it. So I'm super excited about it. But it's just very different from anything that I've written before. And it was a huge challenge to get it from how I pictured it in my head to the paper to translate it to how are I had numerous conversations with my publisher and whatnot to how are we going to do this? And I think I've got it simplified to um, where I, it's very different from where I thought I was going to go with it, but Mm. I think I'm on the right path. So I would say that was the biggest challenge. What's your book about? If you can tell us. Um, of course, this one is um, called Cowgirl and a King, Why Letting mm. Go is the Pathway to Peace. So this is a book for everybody, and mm. it's about letting go. And I pull in a story from, it's got a, a Western equestrian theme, and it's based on this ride that I had when I was 15 in this storm. And it's probably my favorite childhood memory. And I've married that with um, King Josephat. So Jehoshaphat, I think is how you pronounce it. So mm-hmm. it's very different. Yeah, yeah. very different. If you could travel back in time to the start of 2019 and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? I think it would be what I'm talking about in this next book there Mm -hmm. are things that you just gotta let go of learn that the more we can lean in and let go the more free that we feel the less anxiety we will feel Mm -hmm. and it's just a lot easier way to live and there's things in my life like as I'm writing this book I'm like it's a way to check myself going, am I practicing what I'm preaching? Mm, And I've been working on that because I do feel like I practice it 80% of the time, but there's still 20% of things that I'm hanging on to. But, but it's very, it's forefront in my mind Mm. to remember to let go things that we cannot control. Let go, let go, let go. That's great advice. Do you have any regrets from last year? No, I don't. No. I, I don't live with regret. Okay. What's been your biggest challenge? Um, biggest challenge probably is juggling my time between writing a new book, marketing the, raising the bottom. Mm-hmm. I still work a few days as a nurse and manage a house and just juggling life. Life, yeah. Yeah, it's quite where, a lot to juggle. Yeah, 
there's a lot to juggle and I try not to get too caught up in any one thing because I still, I like my downtime and Mm -hmm. I need that quiet time to be creative and think of new things and what I want to write and whatnot. So it's always a juggling act. And here again, I try to let go. I try to do what I can do for that day. And I give my permission on a lot of days to like the last three days, I've done nothing else but work on my new book. And that's Mm. okay. There were other things that didn't get done. And that's okay. I Mm. just give myself permission to do what's in front of me. What's what my my creativity is on fire. I'm going to run with it. Yeah. And my final question, is there anything apart from your new book, obviously, um, that you want to achieve in 2020? No, I would say my goals are more internal in my personal life. Mm. Um, It's very important to me to continue to be a good role model for my grown sons. And now we've got a grandbaby on the way. I want to, in, in, the women that I work with, with alcoholism, I want to continue to be available to them. Mm. I want to continue to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So it's very important to me that I do what I'm suggesting other people do. Mm. So that, yeah, it's just to to maintain a sense of integrity in my life so that my words and actions match what I'm trying to help other people achieve and also to be that positive role model as you say for for your um grand baby or all the people that you work with you know to kind of inspire them and and kind of make sure that they reach their goals as well as you do exactly okay well it was lovely speaking with you again thank you amy thanks for taking the time no problem have a wonderful day and you bye 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 Joshua, my next guest, is a recovering porn addict, a problem that is becoming more prevalent. In our original interview, we discussed his story and why people are likely to become addicted to pornography. His insight and knowledge may be very valuable, so listen to a little bit of our discussion if you didn't last year. I mean, as as you said, it's definitely a stigma and nobody will talk about it as a problem, which is why many people don't admit to having a problem with it. So how did your addiction to porn affect your life personally? Well, I was a very successful businessman. If you go back about 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. I was the publisher of a very popular magazine in this part of the country. Um, I had created a very popular film festival, and I was also a local politician in my town. So I was very Mm -hmm. well known. I was very successful. But for about 20 years, I had hid the fact that I dealt with my stress and my anxiety with alcohol and pornography. Mm -hmm. I guess I had what you would call a uh, a functional addiction, where it didn't really affect my work, didn't really affect my home life, but they were definitely crutches for me. Uh, Eventually, when my business started, one of my businesses started to fail, um, I made the absolutely horrible decision to pull myself off of medication that I take for bipolar disorder. Mm. I thought I thought that I could tap into my manic side, and that might give me two or three extra hours a day 
to work on the issues with the business. And I thought that it would, you know, help me be more creative mm. and help me have a stronger work ethic and a drive. But what ended up happening was in removing that medication from my daily regimen, my addictions absolutely exploded. Yeah. Uh, I started I started drinking almost around the clock, and I went from just looking at pornography online to actually going into chat rooms, and that led to video chat rooms where I would uh, meet up with women and often uh, convince them to take off their clothes or perform sexual acts on a webcam for me, mm-hmm. and. One day in early nineteen or early two thousand fourteen, uh, a little more than five years ago, um, the police showed up at my door and said that one of the women that I spoke with online was actually a teenage girl, mm-hmm. and that absolutely, in the blink of an eye, changed my life forever. I can imagine. Um, at the at at the moment at the moment that happened, I thought that my life was over and it was forever ruined. But since that's happened, I recognize that it has actually been absolutely a blessing that Mm. I don't know how much longer I would have been able to go on living the life that I was living. I only give even odds that I'd be here to talk to you today about it because I was getting that sick. You wrote a book about your recovery from your addictions. What helped change your thinking towards pornography and kind of what do you hope the reader takes away from it? Well, uh, there was, there were, uh, are three things. First is that um, there is no stereotypical porn addict. Mm-hmm. I think that we have this uh, stereotype of a 19-year-old guy living in his mom's basement yeah. who yeah, has that's never, def- never definitely kissed a girl stereotype. in real life. Yeah, and you know, doesn't have interaction with real women. Um, and that's absolutely false. When I went to rehab, uh, for my porn addiction, I met men, women, old, young, rich, poor, white, black, Mexican, Asian. I mean, I met every type of person you can imagine. Mm-hmm. There is no stereo stereotypical porn addict. It can be anybody. Um, the second thing that I wanted people to take away from it is th- is just the idea that this can really lead to places you never would imagine. Now, like I said, I had a porn addiction for 20, 22 years before I ever entered one of these chat rooms. Mm. But like any other, like any other addiction, it escalates. That's what the I was about to say. Yeah, it escalates. The way an alcoholic starts with beer and then moves on to wine and then moves on to shots, or the way a gambling addict starts betting low and then pretty soon they're losing their house and their kids' inheritance. Um, my my addiction escalated when I wasn't taking care of my mental health. And I want people to understand that, you know, 99.9% of the time I was an addict, I wasn't capable of doing this kind of thing, but I reached the point where I was. And if I can reach that point, being a successful business person with a wife, with kids, you know, two cars, nice house, if I can reach that point, anybody can reach that point. Mm-hmm. So anybody who might be an addict reading the book or even listening to us now, don't dismiss that you'll never end up where I was because I would have dismissed it if someone had told me. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the idea behind the book is if you think that you have a pornography addiction, if you feel like you have an issue where your pornography use isn't just recreational, isn't uh, in a, what you'd call healthy use, mm. that you go and get some help. You know, I spent 
hundreds of hours in therapy. As I mentioned, I went to a rehab uh, facility that was inpatient. Um, I got the help that I needed to really reconfigure my brain and really understand how the addictions formed. Mm-hmm. Uh, without that, I don't think I could have conquered it. And so, you know, it's not one of those things that you can easily conquer on your own. You need to get professional help. So I hope people walk away from the book uh, seeking that help if they need it. He gave his time very generously to catch up with me recently and give me a little update about his campaign to raise awareness. Here's what he had to say in answer to my question. So I'm joined by Josh again. Hello. Hi, how are you, Amy? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing quite well. My first question is to pick three words to describe 2019. Exciting, creative, and frustrating. Frustrating in what way? There was a lot of things that I hoped to accomplish. There was, I hoped to educate more people about pornography addiction. I mm-hmm. hoped to get more of a word out there. I hoped more people would be open to the uh, idea and the concepts of pornography addiction that I'd be sharing. And unfortunately, there's just still a lot of people who want to stick their head into the sand and pretend that this either isn't a problem or that pornography addiction isn't even a real thing. Well, you know, I kind of look at it this way. One, When I was trying to get my first book out uh, that came out in, in 2018, there were a lot of publishers who turned it down. Yeah. And many of, many of them gave me a lot of encouragement and said, you know, there are going to be a lot of people who write these books after you. And there are going to be a lot of publishers who print those books. Mm. But to be the first, the, to be the first one is very uh, nerve wracking. Yeah. So somebody else is going to have to be the first and you're just happen to be the first in this. So, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a pioneer or a renegade. So I'm the yeah. one who's <laughs> taking a lot of the slings and arrows and I'll take that if, if that's the case. But uh, at times it's frustrating when, you know, even medical professionals and therapists, counselors, will say to me that they don't think it's real. And it's like, wow, I don't think you should be talking to anybody in a mental health sort of way. Yeah. Like they, they don't really understand it. And so, well, it- and it's one of these things where the medical community is usually actually the last to ever adapt anything. Mm, yeah. it, you know, uh, Alcohol- Alcoholics Anonymous was created in the 1920s. Alcohol uh, obsession, or not obsession, but compulsion was first deemed a scientific term in the 1950s. It wasn't until the early 1990s that the medical community actually started using the word alcoholism in their literature. Think about that. That's 70 years between the formation of Alcoholics Anonymous and the adaptation of the term alcoholism. So, you know, I I try not to take it too personally when the medical community is so far behind, but... uh, it's almost it's almost a personal insult because I went through 20 plus years of pornography addiction and I know the pain that it not only caused me but my close family members some of my friends um, you know it, it's it's almost a slap in the face when they tell me it's not real hmm. and all I can do is tell them well you're very lucky that you have the luxury of ignorance because I lived through it. And you haven't experienced it, yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly. 
So if you could travel back in time to the start of the year and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? That's a great question, Amy. Well, the start I of, prob- oh, oh, sorry, the start of last year. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I, I understand. <laughs> I, I would probably tell myself to take a few more breaks along the way. Don't burn yourself out. Mm. Uh, I did go on a fantastic vacation with my daughter through most of the month of August, but there should have been a few more times where I just chilled out, took a day off, uh, maybe didn't take myself so seriously, maybe just floated around the pool Mm. uh, and, uh, and tried to keep balance. And that's really, for 2019, one of the things I'm trying very hard to do is create a better balance in my life of uh leisure and work you mean 2020 220 yes yes, yes. yes. i'm still writing 2019 on all oh of so my, am i don't uh, worry all of my documents yeah um is there anything that you did this year that you will that you will remember for the rest of your life yeah it's probably the fact that my second book came out uh oh, in wow. december in December. And uh, the, res- the response to my first book was terrific. Mm. Uh, a, lo- a lot of addicts contacted me looking for help, and that's really part of the reason I did it. Yeah. What, surprised- what surprised me the most, though, was that half the people who contacted me were wives or girlfriends of partners. Oh, really? Wow. Wanting-, wanting to know what they can do for their husband or their boyfriend or their brother or their son. It was usually a a close loved one who wanted Mm. to know what they could do. Um, And I realized that, you know, when I came out as a porn addict, there were very few resources for me. And that's why part of the reason I wrote my book, but there are even fewer resources for the loved ones and the partners of porn addicts. So I teamed up with a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist uh, who's out of California. Mm -hmm. And we we wrote a book together called He's a Porn Addict, Now What?, a an expert and a former addict to answer your questions and we did that because we wanted to share information from his point of view who has worked with hundreds of couples who have dealt with this and my point of view who actually lived it so yeah. i think it's actually an a, overall a better picture of what you should do when you are a partner of a porn addict um, than any other book out there. So that came out in December, and that was a real nice uh, way to end the year on a high note. The book, uh, five stars across uh, Amazon. Uh, Nobody's given it anything less than that. It's being well-received by both the uh, addict and addict partner community and the mental health community. So uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with how that's going so far. Yeah, that's that's really good, especially with the two perspectives as well, because sometimes you can get a bit sort of one-sided with one perspective, whereas with the kind of therapist and kind of more, I'm not going to say medical, but more mental health side as well is kind of really interesting and, and kind of unique as well. So well done. Well, well, and thank you. And th- this guy I did it with, we were having a conversation at one point when the idea for the book came up, is that in a lot of his sessions, he either hears from an addict or their partner, well, you don't know how I really feel. You've never been through this. Mm. And I sometimes feel a little bit out of place when an addict or a partner asks me for some real mental health advice mm. or 
you know, wants me to act almost as a therapist, uh, that sometimes makes me feel a little, you know, squeamish because I don't have the schooling. So I mm. think with, but I have the experience. I do know what it's like to be an addict. So like you said, I think putting these two perspectives together gives a more complete picture um, than anything else that's out there. So what has been your biggest challenge in 2019? Uh, 2019 was, like I said, sometimes it was frustrating trying to get out there. I know that we're a couple years away from mainstream uh, world talking about pornography addiction and i know there are people like me who have to nudge it forward but it's kind of frustrating um you know i'm used to having magazine articles written and and writing newspaper articles that i know are read by thousands of people and that i've seen have a difference you know almost overnight um and it's much slower with this it's this is something that i'm clearly building over years yeah. and ed educating over years you know i thought about starting my own podcast but then i realized that i was going to have the same audience over and over and over yeah and what what i need to do is talk to as many people as possible uh so uh, I don't know if uh, over there you're familiar with the story of Johnny Appleseed, uh, but he was a folk legend in America who would basically plant, throw some uh, apple seeds down and keep walking. He was kind of a nomad or a gypsy who just planted apple trees everywhere he walked. And the northeastern part of the United States and, and part of the Midwest, they credit this guy. His real name was John Chapman. And I don't know exactly what is true from the the stories about him and the folktales versus the real guy. But I kind of feel like that. My job is to come, throw the out idea out there, tell people that pornography addiction is a problem, urge them to look into it, and then kind mm -hmm. of move on and tell some more people and move on and tell some more people. So I've been jumping around to a lot of these shows, um, talking to any group that'll have me in a library or a church. And you know, a lot of the time, I actually like coming on some of these recap shows mm. um, and, and end of year shows because I'm not telling my same story no. over and over and over. Uh, I feel like I, I'm a little salesman out there, <laughs> you know, just just repeating the same speech or or a politician mm. just doing the same speech for every group, which is important. And it's yeah. a, it's the first time they've all heard it, but uh, it's not really a challenge anymore if there's no new questions for me to answer no. so i kind of like coming on a show like this where you're asking me all new questions yeah nice to do something a bit different absolutely is there anything you want to achieve in 2020 i see it as a lot of the same just a little bit more i would love <laughs> if i go to a library presentation and instead of eight or ten people there's 15 people mm. i would love it if some of the bigger podcasts or bigger radio shows were willing to talk about this without fear of alienating a sponsor or you know some portion of their listenership mm. um, I, I just want to keep moving this forward and uh i hope to i've got three or four ideas for my next book i'm hoping by later this spring i'll have narrowed it down and we'll begin working on it oh cool well it sounds like you've got a lot coming up and like trying to get the word out there so uh that's that's really positive to hear well, and, you know, and thank you very much for inviting me back to the show. You know, I know that there are going to be people listening right now who didn't hear the first episode no. who are, are like, oh, 
pornography addiction. That's something different. So, you know, any anytime I get an opportunity to talk to anybody about this, and I know it'll be listened to other people, it's fantastic. So I do want to thank you for uh, for being a supporter, Amy. You're very welcome. Thanks, Amy. Thanks. Bye. Bye now. I also interviewed my dad last year about being an entrepreneur and owning a business. He spoke to me about the perils of having people that don't pay up and then get away with it. Here's how they do this. There are people out there who are quite happy to run up huge debts with you and then close their company. That must Uh, be the most frustrating thing ever. Oh, it makes me angry and I would say it's probably the worst part of the business that I know. There's obviously, yeah, that's the worst. It's something I hate, and I think it's time the uh, maybe the government did something about it. They have, they have tried, but got nowhere. Yeah. Uh, and what's what's worse is that um, these people can then close one company and open another, and then open another, and, and all the all the previous debts are written off. So people like me don't get paid. Don't get paid exactly. That's awful. Happens a lot, Amy, and it happens to bigger people than me Mm. so it's just something that I think needs to be addressed yeah unfortunately he was too busy and had other critical things on his mind to take part in an interview with me so I'll play another clip of our interview in 2019 what's the best part of working for yourself that's what everyone wants to know and conversely what's the worst uh best part working for yourself I would say well obviously you're, you're your own boss you're not getting up every morning to go and work for somebody else yeah, I guess that's the thing I like the most is probably the freedom to come and go pretty much as you please as long you know, as long as everything's operating properly. Freedom to make your own decisions and uh, not to have somebody to do that for you. Yeah, I mean, in my case, I, I, I enjoy the freedom of it more than anything. Mm, yeah. Uh, and what's the worst? Well, I guess in my case, I would say... It was bad debts. I hate bad debts. I hate people who don't want to pay you. It was a real honour to interview News at 10 host and author Tom Bradby to speak about his new book, at the time, Secret Service. He spoke at length about his struggles with insomnia, which is the clip I want to highlight in case anyone else is struggling. This is his story. Obviously, you've struggled with insomnia recently. It was widely reported last summer. Uh, I wanted to mention it because mental health is important to me Mm. and my listeners. I made episodes about it, like anxiety and stuff. How did the insomnia manifest itself? Yeah, insomnia is obviously what you get when you're totally depleted, ironically. Mm. So you you get to the point where you've, for whatever reason, you've exhausted yourself over quite a long period. It's quite a natural human mm. evolved instinct to worry about how tomorrow's going to turn out. To, to some extent, spend your time kind of thinking about how you're going to mitigate the threats of tomorrow. Mm. Obviously, the human beings who evolved that instinct to a relatively good level were the probably survivors when we were being chased mm. by, you know, woolly mammoths or whatever. So, it's a natural instinct. If you do it too much, it becomes, as you probably know, a cycle where you, you know, you're, you're sweating it too much, basically. And then the more you sweat, the, the probably less well you sleep. Yeah. You're taking all your stresses into your sleep. 
if you take that to an extreme over a very long period of time, you get to the point where you suddenly one day just don't sleep at all. And obviously, that would be difficult for anyone to handle. That's quite frightening. Get... Yeah, very. Well, very because you don't know what's happening and you can't work out what's happening. And then you're kind of trying to come in and do news at 10 and broadcast to millions of people and you just literally feel absolutely awful. So, yeah. um, so that's why in the end, you know, I was lucky to be able to be referred to very good mental health help. Mm. And, you know, I was signed off work for three months and the psychiatrist basically took me through a whole process of effectively sort of almost shutting down my entire operating system. And then I went and then home like, and I did nothing. And then rebooting it with kind of new ways of thinking and approaching the yeah. world and everything else. And so you come out the other end feeling very liberated and much more content than you've yeah. ever felt. But my, I guess one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about it was I wanted anyone else in the same position to know that they're not alone, obviously, because mm. um, it can be very lonely, as you perhaps know. And secondly, that, you know, to urge them to do something about it, because obviously you can get better, you can liberate yourself from whatever yeah. it is that's troubling you. It takes time and effort yeah. and probably some good help, but it can be done. And, you know, there's a much more yeah. intent life on the other side of it. You wrote an article for Sunday Times about it, mm. and you mentioned having an anxiety attack, mm. like when you sort of decided that maybe it's time to get some help. So what happened with that, and what point did it get to, and how long hadn't you been sleeping before you admitted you had a problem? You get anxiety attacks when you've when you've pushed your body to total breaking mm. point. So you get to the point where you've been, you know, you've been worrying about things, or you've been pressurising yourself, and you've been. In my case, I'd got totally depleted, so it was my body's way of telling me that it could no longer cope. So I'd actually been feeling pretty awful for quite a while. Mm. And then I guess I probably stopped sleeping about two weeks before that or ten days before that. And then you kind of get into a bit of a mess where you're kind of taking sleeping pills to sleep, but you're so so wired, you're not even sleeping well with them. Probably, yeah. Yeah, and then you kind of think, oh my God, what's happening to me? And you don't really know. And then you get, once you get into the position where you just don't know I mean half of getting better is admitting you've got a problem fessing up to people going to get help and then principally educating yourself about yeah. how you got into that mess in the first place and that educational process is incredibly liberating and hopefully totally revolutionizes yeah. your psychology so that you wouldn't hopefully ever get into that yeah. position again yeah. Because to be fair, it takes quite a lot of running yourself down over yeah. a long period of time to yeah. get to that. I have many people, many people have written to me since I had all that and sort of talked about it publicly. And one of the things I find is that when I talk to younger people, and one day I'd kind of like to I think make a sort of public education film about it, and I'm trying to work out the best way to do that. But I think mm. it's helpful when people in my position who appear to have this sort of I don't know, you know, but appear to be quite senior or yeah, quite, yeah. you know, sitting behind this great big desk, apparently totally in control and everything else. It's quite, it's potentially quite helpful, I think, if we admit our frailties and talk about it. And yeah. then hopefully people who are much younger will realise that there's nothing unusual or surprising no. in this and that it's merely important to educate yourself yeah. and, get in, and get through it. But it's... It's something anyone can suffer, and many people do. And you know, there's everyone from Prince Harry to Prince William to many, many other people are acknowledging these things, talking yeah. about them now. And I think it's it's helpful to do so because apart from anything else, once you go through the process of educating yourself and rewiring your thinking, yeah. you end up much more resilient for whatever life may throw at you tomorrow. Yeah. The idea that you you sort of are strong for not talking about it is 
fundamentally misconceived. Definitely. I think because kind of the social media generation mm. as well, like mm. being perfect on Instagram and everything like yeah. that's yeah. so toxic. I think the thing about it is that the social media generation, I think people are hyper-stimulating themselves. Mm. So this thing, and the record I'm picking up my phone, <laughs> you know, this is a, you know, you can look at that every five seconds all day. And when mm. you do it, stimulates you in some way you know you're yeah. on social media you're surprised you're upset you're whatever it is you're or you're just interested yeah the trouble is what what that what that contributes to is a world in which you never switch off yeah. and when i was growing up one of the things i had to try to do when i was off was to rediscover the periods in my youth when i would stare out the window you know when i when yeah. i was when you were on a long train journey or a bus journey when mm. i when you, you know when i was age you know, if you didn't want to read your books, you felt sick in the back of the car, there wasn't really anything to do. No. You know, you couldn't be on your phone, you couldn't be on your iPad, you just would stare out the window for four hours. Now, the thing about <laughs> that, the thing about that is that, you know, sometimes we need to do that. Yeah. Sometimes we yeah. need to do that. And that's what we don't, any of us, are, we're not very good at. Yeah. Days. Fair enough. With all the news of Brexit and everything else going on in politics, Tom wasn't able to be interviewed. So I thought I would play another clip with him explaining about his latest novel, Secret Service. The sequel, Double Agent, is out in May. I'm so excited to give it a read. Your current or latest book is called Secret Service. So for those who don't know, what's it about? Well, it's about... So I think as a probably motivated by a number of things. One is, as you sort of indicated in writing novels and subsequently films for ever since I was really a journalist. So part of you just wants to write a great novel that's going to be up there with the the carries or the whatever and I've spent years and years of sort of hard graft learning how to write novels. Partly though, inevitably as a journalist you also sort of want to capture the sort of spirit of the times you live in, the slightly crazy times you live in. And I mentioned as a student I was reporting on I mean as I was coming into journalism the Cold War was coming to an end and all the rest of it. And now we're sort of suddenly thirty years later pitched into a kind of new Cold War where the Russians are very active again, they're trying to undermine the West very clearly. So the idea behind it is mid-ranking MI6 officer who's a kind of wife and a mother and trying to look after her own Alzheimer's mother who's rather poisonous. She's trying to keep it all together and suddenly she's um, she runs an intelligence operation to bug a Russian oligarch super yacht. She finds herself listening to a conversation amongst three of their intelligence officials and from that conversation yields the intelligence that the British Prime Minister's got prostate cancer and is about to resign which nobody in Britain knows and that one of the leading candidates to replace him is potentially a Russian spy, but it's not clear which one. And the moment I sort of had that idea, I just thought that is the juiciest idea I've ever had, and I've got to sit down and write it. And I did yeah. very quickly. Divorce is definitely a taboo subject that many people don't want to bring up within marriages. Gabrielle Hartley promotes being happier apart rather than staying together unhappy for the sake of the children or other reasons. In our interview, we discussed her experience as a lawyer and the implications of divorce on children, and she told the story of co-parenting when her parents split up in the 1970s, a common practice now but unheard of back then. Here's a clip. So I'm with Gabrielle, hello. Hi. You're, you're a divorce lawyer, is that correct? I am. What's your kind of daily role? Because I'm really interested in like what what lawyers and like particularly like divorce lawyers do day to day. So maybe you could explain a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So 
So I've been a divorce lawyer and mediator and divorce consultant or coach um, in the last few years, but I've been doing a divorce law for 25 years nearly. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I can't believe how old I am. It's like crazy. Um, And I work, um, I'm originally from New York City. I worked for a judge and I resolved, you know, hundreds and hundreds of really messy trial ready divorce cases. And Mm -hmm. so um, I'm actually these days working more and more as almost a positive divorce missionary and as a coach for individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, And I help other lawyers transform their practice into a practice that they enjoy. So they're not so stuck in the mess and they can move into um, more positive work. They don't have to change their job to do better work and to feel better about it. Mm. Um, it used to be to like get back to your question, you know, with the day to day, it's a lot of just listening to people and, um, you know, getting to the core of what was really going on for them in their case mm-hmm. and trying to get people to really focus on their needs versus their wants and to move forward through the process with as much ease and grace as possible while advocating as strongly as possible. So I'm a little bit different than most divorce attorneys. I'm extremely resolution oriented, no matter how messy it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that does not mean to, I, I help, I have people give away what they shouldn't give away. But at the same time, I believe that zealous advocacy in the context of divorce is quite different. Um, than it is in many other contexts because you cannot, um, you, you can't really, uh, I'm going to say divorce. You can't separate the fact that you represent this individual from the fact that they're part of the community of the family, which in the case where there is a child or multiple children, it's never going to be completely bifurcated. Yeah. Okay. That's really so I don't know if I, that answered your question. <laughs> it definitely did. It definitely did. So Okay, good. What do you find is the most common reason for couples to like seek a divorce? Is it is it that they aren't in love or they hate each other or like what 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 do you find is is kind of the most I guess widely okay, so, widely told reason? I yeah, guess. and so 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 um, that's a great question, Amy. Um, one of the reasons that I was inspired to write Better Apart and to create the Better Apart Masterclass mm-hmm. was all about the fact that most divorces really stem from poor communication. Mm. And a lot of that com- poor communication, I mean, it, it stems for, from lots of different reasons. But one thing is that people don't know their own um, voice, right? And so there's mm. a lot of like a lack of emotional confidence in expressing what we want in a clear way. And so instead, a lot of disruptive communication happens for a variety of reasons and then things spiral out of control and there's a lot of blaming and finger pointing and not that much active visionary work in our own backyards and that's what gets us tripped up. Hmm. So you mentioned the mask. So I mean people are sorry. Sorry, no, it's just people often are say, Oh, is money the biggest issue? Is cheating the biggest issue? You know, everybody wants to know because everybody's like, Oh my gosh, how can I not get divorced? And um you know, the way to not get divorced, I mean, is to know yourself really well before you get married and be very clear about who you are and what you want. And of course, like who, who can do that? Like such mm. few people. That's why there are so few people who are actually, you know, happily, peacefully, easily, positively married. But the master course, right, which is designed for mm. – it's really – 
it's for any of us. It happens to be about divorce, but even if you're someone who is, um, is just a person with family members or friends going through a divorce or not, it's, it's about connecting with yourself and yeah. getting deeply in line with your own vision of what you want to manifest, not what your mom and dad or, you know, the, your teachers or your peers are, are wanting, but where is your truth? And I analyze it. I actually don't analyze it. You analyze it, but I give you the tools, right. To take yourself from that negative inner narrative that is getting in your way of bringing forward your greatness because everyone, all your listeners, you, me, like we all have this inner greatness that just needs to be unfurled. We need bravery. We need courageousness. And I do this through a five-step process, which is about developing your own um, peace, peace, self-respect, clarity, patience, and forgiveness. And, um, and I give lots of tools and it's, it's kind of fun. I mean, it gives you a little break in your day to go listen to a little video and do some journaling and tap into parts of yourself that you may have long forgotten. Or you may not have known existed. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. Okay. Or you may not have developed. Yeah, maybe. As you mentioned earlier, divorce is hard on families. So what psychological effect can divorce have on, say, for example, children who are involved in it, and particularly if it's a messy divorce as well? Yeah, so that's another great question, Amy. Um, uh, I just posted recently on all my social media a cover of a Time magazine from 2000, which is like, oh, should wow. parents stay together? <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you can find it on, like, my LinkedIn and Instagram I'll, and stuff. I'll have a look. I had, and this was even, like before I was working um, exclusively as a divorce attorney, I must have swiped it from my grandma and grandpa's house because my grandfather used to get Time magazine. And I think it offended me, right? Because my parents were divorced and I didn't think they did me this great disservice. Um, It's not about the fact of the divorce. It's about the conflict. So better to be divorced and be calm and easeful than to be married and to be in a a messy, conflictual environment environment. But similarly, getting divorced and then continuing to have the really nasty back and forth, you're not doing your children any favors either. Because think about it, we learn by what we see, right? So there's like a set of people just naturally resilient and are not going to be impacted. But most of us are impacted by our parents and our grandparents and even our great grandparents' internal narratives. That's where we learn who we are and what our role is within um, the greater world. And so when we have an internal narrative that's powerful and active, we pass that down and we create powerfully active children and grandchildren, etc. She gave me some of her time to update me on what she's been up to. Listen to how her 2019 was. So I'm back with Gabrielle. Hello. Hi. Hiya. I'd like you to pick three words to describe 2019. Oh, that's great. Um, Energizing. Mm -hmm. A bit frightening, maybe. Mm. In what what uh, way frightening? Frightening because I was taking on new things. Um, You know, I'm quite a bit older and Mm. I 
very comfortable in my career as a divorce attorney. And I have cropped up as a speaker and I created a certification program for people going through divorce and people working with divorcing people. And I really put myself out there in a fairly large way across traditional media and um, social media. So it's a little uh -huh. bit scary, you know, it's like vulnerable, yeah. vulnerable right? Yeah. Um, I kept saying, I feel like I'm 25 again, because this is exactly how I felt when I was 25, right? And that's about half my lifetime ago. So it's, <laughs> I'll say it's kind of cool. Like, I think a lot of people who are my age are just like a little bored, and I just refuse to be bored. So, so inspiring and a little frightening and energizing, I'd say. Cool. So if you could travel back in time to the start of last year and give yourself a piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, Amy, these are such great questions. <laughs> a piece of advice, because nobody asks me about myself, right? Um, a piece of advice. I don't know. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, what I would have done is I would have created my programs sooner. Yeah. Um, but I would have done that two years ago. Hmm. It's fine. I mean, it, things sort of um, happen for me generally in a very organic way. You know, hmm. I... I tend to be a bit less strategic and quite um, responsive to what I'm hearing people need around me. Um, so I don't know if that's old school or, um, you know, smart or just disorganization. <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah. So if I could have created what I have now a year ago, I'd be at a whole other level right now. That's okay. Because I feel like I've created such unbelievable bonds across the seas mm. and right here at home over um, this last year. And I'm excited to see where it takes me next. I've had, I have not had this much fun at work. I have not had this much fun doing something um, vocationally since college. And I, I loved college. So, you know, since then, this is like the most fun I've had. So thank you for asking. It's a good reminder. That's, that's okay. Is there anything you did last year that you will remember for the rest of your life? Oh my God. I mean, I think I'm going to just remember everything that I did last year. I, um, I ran something called the best you ever divorce retreat in Los Angeles. And it was a really huge success. And I did it with two other fabulous colleagues, um, traveling all over the country and running, um, workshops and retreats at, as I've never done before. It's just really exciting and really memorable. Um, I can't say that there's one thing in particular, except as I was starting to mention, um, the best you ever divorce retreat was a really great kickoff um, to see how many people really need a kick of um, kickstart to positivity. And now I've been starting to do these talks, not just for people getting divorced, just people who are ready to um, have a, a method to feel better and get more engaged with themselves, no matter what may come is there one song that reminds you of 2019 so when you listen to it you think oh that was tied to that occasion or you know this kind of sums up my year <laughs> well to be honest the songs that come to mind are because I have three boys including a teenager um so it's a lot of nirvana a lot of smells like <laughs> playing in my car um and then I have younger boys and it's the Hamilton soundtrack so I'm not going to say it's tied with um work but definitely you know, a lot of grunge and nirvana. <laughs> <laughs>
What was your biggest challenge of last year? Oh gosh, the biggest challenge is keeping everything moving forward without um, too much resources. You know, I really, mm. I, I really put my divorce practice, I became extraordinarily choosy about the clients that I took because mm. I had such other work obligations. And um, the challenge is to every day keep moving forward, even though, oh, you know what? I'll tell you what my song is. Um, I think it's Simon and Garfunkel. I'm on my way. I don't know where I'm going. I'm on my way. I'm taking my time. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Queen of Corona. No, no. Me and Julio down by the schoolyard. Sorry, it's, you know, my early morning nasal voice. Otherwise, it would sound fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that whole theme of, you know, I don't know where I'm going, but I know that this is the right path. I have... Mm -hmm. I almost feel like my work is like mission driven. I feel like divorce is so in the shadows and so many of our lives, so many pains that are so ordinary, you know, whether you're dealing with mental illness or, um, you know, or an unexpected death or something like this. And people don't want to talk about these things because they're uncomfortable, but then those of us who are experiencing them and those of us is, you know, when you put together all the awful things that happen during one's human existence, it's probably 75 to 80% of everybody. So why should we live feeling bad? We need to enjoy our day today. And so mm -hmm. what I really, I'm really inspired by inspiring people. Have you developed any new skills? Uh, new skills. Uh, <laughs> I don't know um, if it's a skill. I mean, I'm able to um, not sleep at all. <laughs> like I work. <laughs> yeah, new skill is I can sleep for four hours, several days in a row and still be standing up straight. It's, it's definitely a lot of work. So um, I feel like I'm pretty good at work-life integration. You know, I, I, uh, mm. I have a very good, um, I, I hate to say balance because nothing's ever balanced. It's just sort of, you know, integrated within, um, integrating my life with the kids and not missing any of their important events. And I try, as I said, I have three boys and I make my, um, really, I'm very mindful about spending quality time with each of them one-to-one -one for bits yeah. of time, you know, traveling with them or just doing something for a day or two that's just special to them. So yeah. that's been something I've worked more at. Whereas when I was working less, I, I wasn't as mindful of it. Now, I feel like it's quality, and that's mm. what it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is, and my last question, is there anything you want to achieve in 2020? Any oh, big goals? Uh, any big goals? I'm full of big goals. <laughs> um, I want um, the divorce, the positive divorce conversation and the positive divorce movement to really take off. You know, I keep saying mm. I'm a glorious dynamo of divorce. A big goal is that I'm, um, I'm speaking on behalf of um, anybody who is struggling with moving through a difficult work environment or divorce environment and such that they can feel better, right? So mm. I, I want to um, just reach as many, as large an audience as I possibly can and let them know that their experience is human and um, teach them about neutralizing their thoughts so that they can tap into their deep wells of inner wisdom, which, which we all have. And I, and I imagine through your podcast, you're able to really um, speak to so many people and get so much insight in this regard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
and, and, and also the better part method, um, the certification, I'm looking to um, have this more wide reaching so that people know what it is and they bring it into their law practices and mm. into their coaching practices. Unfortunately, coaching is not something, especially in divorce, it's not something that's widely known or respected and it really should be. Um, but I think the trouble is a lot of people who hold themselves out to be divorce coaches are not properly coached in the areas of divorced. In, mm. of divorced. They're coached by very good life coaches and some of them have great skills, but there are certain arenas that they need to go a bit deeper in so that the advice that they're giving um, is serving their clients cases in a positive way. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for appearing on the show again and answering my questions. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much, Amy. And I look forward to continuing our conversation. Sure. Veterans are very important people who serve our country, but unfortunately become diagnosed with conditions such as PTSD. Richard Lynch supports veterans with his Love Tattoo Foundation, contributing from sales of his music and other endeavours. Here's how he does this and what it means to the people he helps. You're also a founder of the Love Tattoo Foundation that helps veterans. Now, we in the UK have national charities like Help for Heroes and the British Legion who help veterans when they are out of service to kind of rehabilitating things do you in the u.s not have the same and is that why you decided to set up the charity well the love tattoo foundation is was a uh, came along for the simple fact that we have a huge appreciation mm. for the men and women that serve our country and uh, we have a song called love tattoo that me mm. and ronnie mcdowell did as a duet and uh, so we promote the song and we play in our concerts and we try to make awareness of a facility yeah. in Michigan that, uh, that kind of, we do the song, we do a lot of money, raise some money for and do some shows for to make awareness for these folks who I feel is very deserving. Of course. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, um, I, I never personally served in the, in the military, but my grandpa did, oh, my, my dad did, my brother did. I've never, I, I've never met a, a military person man or woman that didn't seem to be very humble they they seem to be so appreciative of the fact that somebody cares enough to do something for them you know when i when i see this and i, I see how giving these individuals are I, it makes me respect them even more and mm. so as far as i'm concerned we can't do enough to help them speaking of helping them you have raised over a hundred thousand dollars for veteran charities how did how did you do that? Did you do it through your concerts? Did you do it through like fundraising events? Well, a multitude of things that we do. We uh, we have merchandise. We have uh, CD sales. We do mm-hmm. live concerts, and uh, we have a foundation that we contribute uh, a certain amount uh, of proceeds based on what uh, concert we are doing at the time. Um, now. When we provide our own concert and we can include uh, Love Tattoo Foundation, there's always a percentage. Uh, of the funds that goes directly to the uh, to the Wilwyn Lodge, which mm-hmm. is in Michigan. Yeah. It's a 1,200-acre facility with a 60-acre lake, and wow. it's dedicated dedicated only to, um, you know, the veterans. You know, I, mm. from what I gather, 18 to 22 veterans commit suicide a month, and I find that completely uh, unacceptable. Yeah. So if we can make awareness of a facility that will 
dedicate and help uh, help these these folks out there, you know, for some little R and R and just to have a little conversation, or maybe even to uh, to seek some professional help. There's mm-hmm. a place out there that uh, exists, and that's why we're trying to do what we do. Sadly, I didn't get in touch with Richard in time to record an end-of-year interview, but I hope he had a good 2019 and will have a very prosperous 2020. I'll keep you updated with what he's up to. I asked him at the end of our original interview whether he had anything coming up. Here's what he said. So you're you're hosting the Keeping It Country Farm cruise in 2020. So what can people expect from the cruise if they're attending? Well, the Keeping It Country Farm, we do a, um, a, a summertime venue where we do live shows from june all the way through october and we'll bring a grand old opera star to our farm um and um there's somebody that's these folks that comes to our show they've been been my heroes for you know, ever since i was a child and i want to honor them and be a part of their uh their career and then therefore uh, it's pretty cool that i can be i can call these folks uh my friends so June, July, August, September, and our final show will be October 12th. We're bringing Mel Tillis Jr. to our farm. Um, Mel Tillis, of course, is no longer with us, but his son does an incredible um, tribute to his dad and even even brings his dad's uh, previous band that he performed with all those years called the Statesiders. Oh, wow. So October, That's really cool. October 12th will be a uh, the final show here at our farm for this year and like i say it, it's it, it's a beautiful facility it seats about 350 we've had as many as 400 in there but uh, it's an awesome facility the the barn is just about as big an attraction as the music and it's pretty unique and uh, we're awful proud that we can keep and preserve and give people what they want they want they want to hear that traditional country music and we're yeah. doing our part to keep it alive and well out there is there anything else happening in the next few months or next year or kind of in future that you can tell us about? Oh, my wife, Miss Donna, and my manager, Mr. Randy Hafer, they've got me doing all kinds of crazy things out, <laughs> on, out, out in the, out this world. We, we do things in Texas. We do things in Michigan. We do things all over the place. Um, we have friends in the Faroe Islands. We, 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 you never know where uh, our next opportunity will come from, and mm. we're very grateful that we get to do this music and meet so many friends and network our music around the world. So yeah, we have a lot of cool things that we're doing. We're going to be in the studio again here in the near future with three brand new songs that I have just wrote. So there's such a, an immense amount of, uh, uh, of things going on in our, our life right now. We get to work with some of these amazing heroes of mine, you know, Bellamy brothers and Mo Bandy and, and uh, Johnny Lee and Ronnie McDowell. Those are all on the up and coming very near future things that we're doing so yeah we have a lot of things going on um you know i'm just very appreciative that folks want to take a time and have a conversation with me and get to know about my music because there's nothing better for me than to get to say i met somebody and shake their hand hug their neck it you know it uh it's pretty special that i get to do something i love like this That's it for the end of year special of 2019-2020. I hope you enjoyed listening to updates from, from my past guests. Let me know if there's anyone else you would like to see on the podcast or if you know of anyone who would like to be featured. To keep up with future episodes of the show throughout 2020, do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud and Spotify. 
Like my page on Facebook or follow me on Twitter, both at Amy Talks Podcast, for clips and extras from different episodes of Amy Talks. Thank you so much for your support over the last couple of years I've been producing this podcast. I really appreciate it. Until next time, bye.